0: We turn first of all to Isaiah chapter forty-six. As of late, we have been concentrating on fundamental doctrines. We began on the doctrine of the cross, and as I mentioned on Wednesday evening, I've got to at least one more message on the cross, and then we're going to focus on the blood. Amen. But. Um, I want everyone to hear that message on the cross, and so I didn't preach it uh, on Wednesday. I'm not going to preach it here this morning. Um, The Spirit of God laid something else on my heart uh, for today. Uh, Last week, I had several conversations on both uh, God's and man's volition, and I realized that I had never taught on God's exhaustive foreknowledge, and uh, especially in relation to To man's free will, so Lord willing, Amen. That's going to be my aim here this morning to concisely address, briefly, if you will. You could really teach on this, um, you know, for weeks on end, and so this will be as simple as I can make it, but hopefully understandable, Amen. So let's read first of all out of Isaiah chapter forty-six, verses nine through ten. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Now turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation the last chapter of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, verses 16 and 17. So we read the text from Isaiah 46, and of course that speaks of God's foreknowledge. And this here will speak of man's free will. Revelation 22, beginning in verse 16 I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root of the offspring of David and the bride and the morning star. And the spirit of the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will. And whosoever will. This denotes choice. Somebody say amen. Amen. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So our thought here this morning, God's exhaustive foreknowledge and man's free will. And this will just be part one Wednesday, Lord willing, we will finish. Father, we just ask for the illumination of your word, that your truth would be exalted, that we would be established in sound doctrine, that we would take heed to our doctrine as your word commands. Father, I, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would guide us into all truth as you promised. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have a lot of ground here to cover. And uh, again, I'm going to try to be as quick and as simple as possible so that we can comprehend. Amen. And, and not really that some of these things with our finite mind we cannot totally comprehend. Uh, We are to simply believe what the Bible teaches. Amen. So almost all professing Christians, or should I say all Christians believe, but some professing Christians may not, believe that God has all knowledge. Amen. Uh, Both according to the scripture and correspondingly in the tradition Judeo-Christian view of deity, God is omniscient, which simply means that he knows all things, even the future. And so it is understood that omniscience is an an attribute of deity. And this is referred to as exhaustive foreknowledge. Now, there are generally three theological camps in regards to how this foreknowledge, God's foreknowledge, is understood. Yet in all three of these camps, uh, they affirm that exhaustive foreknowledge is certain Amen? Meaning that what God knows, and especially what he knows of the future, must come to pass, and it cannot be otherwise. There are no sects of Christians that do not believe that exhaustive foreknowledge is not certain. Everyone believes it is certain. There are just other things that they disagree on. These three camps are open theist, Calvinists, and Armenians. Open theists and Calvinists contend that God's exhaustive foreknowledge and man's free will are in, incompatible. In other words, they reason. <clears throat> if God's foreknowledge is certain, then it must be necessary. Or if God's foreknowledge cannot be otherwise, then man has no choice in the matter. Consequently, open theists affirm man's free will, amen, but they deny traditional omniscience, believing in something called limited foreknowledge. They reduce God down to a little itty-bitty God that has to guess at things and be a good predictor. (laughs) So they say God's knowledge is limited, that he only knows what uh, they deem is things he can know, and uh, not having knowledge of future moral decisions of men which can be easily refuted by the scriptures. I have engaged many open theists. I believe their arguments are absolutely stupid. And I'm, I mean, it really, I don't even understand how someone could believe that. Amen. And so um, they talk about God having to guess, you know, he's been around a long time and he is a lot smarter than you and I. So he can kind of figure out what's going to happen sometimes. So I think that's really an affront to the holy nature Uh, of God. Amen. While Calvinists affirm traditional omniscience, they deny man's free will, asserting predestination or predeterminism. So you see this, you've got this philosophical or seemingly philosophical contradiction of God knowing all things and man's freedom. And so that one removes or alters God's knowledge, the other alters man's freedom and so in the calvinistic camp you have either hard determinist and that's those who believe that god decrees everything Um, every event every choice has been predetermined by god and that no one has free will and uh, what's going to happen is going to happen etc and so forth there's other and probably the majority of Calvinists hold to something called a, a compatibilist view of free will which simply means, like in in the Westminster Confession, they say that God decrees everything, amen, but yet he's not responsible for sin. Do they explain that? No. They just say it's compatible because it is. Amen. So the hard determinists, which are uh, uh, a minority among Calvinists, those are real Calvinists that are being logical and consistent with what they believe. We believe the Scriptures affirm both God's exhaustive foreknowledge as well as man's free will. We make a distinction between certainty and necessity. We assert the fact that something is foreknown by God makes it certain, but it does not make it necessary. Amen. Knowledge is not causation. Amen. And that really works in the past as well. Just because you know of events that took place in the past doesn't mean you caused those events. And if you did have special knowledge of events that took place in the future, those events would be certain, but you didn't cause those events. Everyone, that's easy to understand, and we're going to delve into that on Wednesday when we begin to try to explain this. Further, First this morning, we're going to establish God's exhaustive foreknowledge, and then secondly, we're going to elaborate uh, briefly on man's free will. Then on Wednesday evening, we're going to continue. We're going to seek to reconcile these two and explain how God's exhaustive foreknowledge does not violate man's volitional freedom. Now, this in no means is to be understood as comprehensive. Uh, you can study this a long, long time and uh, look at a lot of different angles. But uh, And I have several articles and things that address this that are posted on the website if you want to look into uh, you know, further study. First of all, we're going to address God's exhaustive foreknowledge. Amen. Revelations 1 and 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Do you see? Amen. God has foreknowledge. So before we delve into what the Bible actually says about Foreknowledge. Remember, the very scriptures themselves verify God's omniscience. Why is this? Because the scriptures could not have been inspired apart from exhaustive foreknowledge. Amen? Because there's so many prophetic events uh, and so many things that are prophesied in the scripture that lean upon the exhaustive foreknowledge of God. As we know, the Bible is filled with prophecy of future events that was, is heavenly dependent upon divine foreknowledge. The fact that we have an infallible and an inerrant Bible tes- testifies to the certainty that God indeed possesses exhaustive foreknowledge. Aside from this, what though do the scriptures say? First, let's read the verses that mention foreknowledge directly. Acts 2, 22 through 23 Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Something that God knew beforehand. Romans 8 and 28. For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Amen. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Those who God did foreknow would choose to repent and be born again. The object of the predestination there is not individual salvation, but those that are born again being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 11 and 2, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. He knows who is going to endure until the end and be born again. First Peter 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, by Athenia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So obviously, it's irrefutable when you read the scriptures that God possesses foreknowledge. Now, let's look at some other passages. And, and again, there are so many passages in the Bible, uh, really about free will and about exhaustive foreknowledge. Just so many things that could be read. I just picked out the most obvious things for time's sake. 1 Samuel 23, 9-13, And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. And he said to Abathar the priest, bring hither the ephod. Then said David, O Lord God of Israel, thy servant has certainly heard that Saul seeketh to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me up into his hand? Will Saul come down as thy servant hath heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then said David, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver thee up. Then David and his men, which were about six hundred, arose and departed out of Keilah, and went whithersoever they could. And it was told Saul that David was escaped from Keilah, and he forbear to go forth. Now what does that mean? It shows you that God knows contingencies. Not only does God know every choice that every human being will ever make, he knows the options that they could have made and what would happen if they did do that or didn't do it. And so now God knew that Saul wouldn't go up. The question was, amen, if I stay here, will he come up? Amen. And he said, if you stay there, he's a-coming, and they're going to deliver you. So he left. But God knew that would happen. Amen. He just answered David's. Question, amen. Psalms one thirty nine and four, for there is not a word in my tongue, but O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Isaiah forty two and nine, behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Isaiah forty five and twenty-one. Tell ye and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord? Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. John 16 and 13, speaking of the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost In his ministry to his people, and he will show you things to come. He must have foreknowledge to reveal to us things that will come. Amen? John 16 and 30. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, said Jesus' disciples to him, and needest not that any man should ask thee? By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Well, yeah, but how come... And again, John 21 and 17, He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. Now this is, of course, when Jesus was on earth. And uh, we know that Jesus in the incarnation, that hypo a static union of man, fully man, and fully God. So there are things when Jesus spoke about you know, his return and said he didn't even know, the Son of Man didn't even know. Often people will say, well, uh, Jesus did not know the hour of his return. No, Jesus knew the hour of his return. As a man, as a man, he didn't know, but as God, he did know. And if he ever didn't know for even one second, he wasn't God because he didn't have omniscience. Now you say, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, neither does the incarnation. You already have a an intellectual paradox. You have something there that doesn't make any sense. And the whole idea, and, and one of the beautiful things is when you begin to study these things out, number one, you realize how the Trinity, the Trinity is absolutely essential. The oneness is, is utterly stupid. It, you, you, it couldn't have been that way. there's no, the beauty and the wisdom where there had to be the Trinity, amen, and all these things uh, so, that, so that redemption could be, uh, could be carried out and it, it not violate, violate all sorts of principles, etc and so forth. So you have Jesus fully as a man, and you have full, Jesus fully as God, simultaneously. He can say, I don't know as a man. And he can say, I do know as a man at the same time. That's what the incarnation, amen, provides the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are not really contradictions. Acts 15 and 18. Known unto God are all his works from the, get, the beginning of the world. Hebrews four twelve through 13, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even, to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Amen. So, and again, there's so many more scriptures that we could cite that speaks about uh, the exhaustive foreknowledge of God. It's really not a point of debate. Among Christians, everyone believes this, but we just want this to be established. Secondly, here this morning, let's look at man's volitional freedom. Deuteronomy 30 and 19, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. Do you see freedom, volitional freedom expressed here? It couldn't be anything otherwise, amen? God in his sovereignty has created man in his own image, amen? As such, we are volitional beings. Men as well as angels are considered moral agents because they possess attributes capable of attaching moral value to their choices and actions. It's important to note that both sin and sin And holiness, both love and hate, demand volition. Amen? You cannot hate, you cannot love, you cannot sin, you cannot live holy without choice. Amen? Without choice, there can be no moral culpability for sin. God created man with freedom of free will so that man could respond and interact relationally with him in love. It's impossible to love without a choice. If you just program a computer to say yes and amen to everything that you say, that's not love. So with that divinely ordained ability that God has given man to choose love, the possibility of choosing the contrary or choosing evil was an inescapable and inverse consequence. So God, knowing, amen, Uh, that he wanted a creation that he could interact or man have a relationship with, that he created man with freedom, but he knew that there was the possibility of sin with volitional freedom. Therefore, acknowledging this truth, we understand that God did not create evil. Uh, A lot of times uh, Calvinists will quote, it's in Isaiah, I think Isaiah 45, where God created evil. And uh, that word evil there is speaking of calamity, meaning of storms or what have you. It's not talking about moral evil, amen. God did not create evil. Evil is non-material. It's moral. It is volitional in nature. And it is merely a possible outcome of volitional freedom. As darkness is simply the absence of light and cold is the want of heat, so evil is the moral consequence of men or angels choosing to reject God and his word. The fact that God has endowed man with freedom of choice is communicated really on every page of the Bible. And again, free will is not explicit. In other words, there's no verse that just says man has a free will. But it is implicit all over the scriptures. For example, Adam and Eve were given the choice to obey or disobey God, Genesis two sixteen 16 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Amen. So from this command we see both obedience and disobedience were possibilities, which simply means, Amen, Adam and Eve had volitional freedom. And that's where sin came from. Uh, In fact, uh, how how did Lucifer, how did he fall into sin? There's no sin nature. There's not even a devil yet. He's got to become the devil. It's because he had the possibility, amen, the the volitional freedom to choose contrary. And that's the same reason that Adam fell. The curses and blessings that God gave to Moses to communicate to the children of Israel, they were based on the Jews' free moral agency, Deuteronomy 28 and 15. But it shall come to pass, if thou will not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. All over the scriptures, God urges men to choose life, to choose, to come unto me, open the door, whosoever will, etc. and so forth. This is so many times... All through the Bible, phrases like that are used. We also see many examples in the scriptures revealing men exercising their volition in obeying or disobeying God. For example, the psalmist declared in Psalms 119 and 30, I have chosen the way of truth. Thy judgments have I laid before me. In Matthew 23 and 37, Jesus said of the Jews who were under spiritual ruin, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Amen. There's the possibilities of blessing and cursing. We see the mind of God, what he and his perfect will was to bless. His perfect will was to reveal himself but he couldn't do that because of their choice, amen? This is so clear and so clearly taught all over the Bible. In Luke 10 and 42, Jesus said, Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. Mary had a choice. As the apostle Paul recounted his conversion encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he told Agrippa, "Whereupon, O king Agrippa, I was not disobedient under the heavenly vision, which simply tells us he could have disobeyed, amen. It irrefutably confirms that he had the option to either obey or to disobey, and even in an unconverted state. And that's just a a small sampling of the biblical passages that I could cite to confirm man's free will. So it is God has granted man volitional freedom, and we will all, every one of us, stand before God as free moral agents. And so again, the choice we have to obey or disobey, that choice is ours. Amen. But so are the consequences. Whatever we choose, there are ramifications, benefits, promises, consequences that follow. As Jesus said in Matthew seven thirteen through 14, enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. As A.W. Tozer commented, men are free to decide their own moral choices. But they're also under the necessity to account to God for those choices. That makes them both free and also bound. For they are bound to come to judgment and give an account of the deeds done in the body. Now Calvinists who deny free will, and they do so with their erroneous doctrine of total depravity. That's represented in that theological acronym of the TULIP. You've heard of that, the TULIP. Well, that's uh, the T is total depravity. The U is unconditional election. uh, The L is limited atonement uh, the I is irresistible grace, and P is once saved, always saved, or perseverance, the saints. And and everything is really progressive. In other words, if there's not total depravity, if men do have free will, none of those other four points of cal- Calvinism can stand. So this is a very, and, and again, when you hear that term total depravity, you, you want, well, don't we believe that men are totally, yes, but not in the sense that they don't have free will. We believe that men are, have fallen into sin, they're bound by sin, and I'm going to explain that in just a minute. But Calvinists were influenced by Augustine in the 4th century, or rather Augustine out of that thinking. Augustinian theology sprung Calvinism. Before that, uh, the vast, if not if not all the church fathers, it's, it's very difficult to find any church, and again, these things are not, they're, they're secondary to what the scriptures say. Amen? But nevertheless, you know, all the way up to the fourth century, it's almost impossible to believe uh, that, that, or that some church father didn't believe that men had free will. So I just got a sampling of early church father quotes, and uh, I've got pages. And when I say pay, I'm not kidding. I mean, pages, probably hundreds of quotes by early church fathers that affirm all these things. Or there, you know, things that are basically there's zero point Calvinist. So this is Justin Martyr. In the beginning, he made the human race with the power of thought, and of choosing truth and doing right, so that all men are without excuse before God. Freedom necessary for culpability. Amen. Clement of Alexandria. We have believed, and are saved by voluntary choice. Tertullian, I find then that man was constituted free by God. He was master of his own will and power. For a law would not be imposed upon one who did not have it in his power to render that obedience which is due the law. You see, they were led by the same spirit we're led. That's what we say. God can never command you to do something that he wouldn't give you grace to fulfill. Nor again would the penalty of death be threatened against sin, If a contempt of the law were impossible to man in the liberty of his will, man is free with a will either for obedience or resistance. Again, Tertullian, no reward can be justly bestowed. No punishment can be justly inflicted upon him who is good or bad by necessity and not by his own choice. Iranius: this expression how often would I have gathered thy children together and, though, and thou wouldest not set forth the ancient law of human liberty because God made man a free agent from the beginning, possessing his own soul to obey the behest of God voluntarily and not by compulsion of God. For there is no coercion with God, but a goodwill toward us is present with him continually and therefore does he give good counsel to all. And in man, as well as in angels, he has placed the power of choice for angels or rational beings so that those who had yielded obedience might justly possess what is good, given indeed by God, but preserved by themselves. Amen. And again, just a sampling of what the church fathers said about freedom. Now, We acknowledge that the human will has been impacted both by the fall and by personal sin. And it can only be fully recovered by regeneration. So we believe, we do not believe in inherited uh, depravity. We believe in acquired depravity. We didn't inherit depravity or guilt from Adam. No one's going to hell directly for Adam's sin. But there are repercussions for Adam's sin. We have physical depravity, weaknesses, uh, sickness, disease, death, etc. and so forth. There are other, you know, a world of temptation and a lot of other ramifications. That's consistent with I visit the sins of the fathers to the fourth generation. But Ezekiel 18 speaks about, amen, that we all die for our own sins. Amen. A son is not going to die for the sins or In other words, there's not going to be an inherited uh, or a a, a passed-on guilt. Every man is going to answer for his own sins. We're all going to stand before God and give an account for the deeds done in our body, not in our grandfather's body. Amen. So thank God. That's not just. Hallelujah. But we don't deny that the will of man has been affected by sin. Amen. Moreover, sinners have a certain degree of natural ability. That's a big debate, a point of debate uh, in theology. Just how much can men obey God? And so uh, we believe that they have a certain degree of natural ability, meaning they can refrain from any given sin. In other words, a sinner, amen, can choose to refrain. From certain things, they don't necessarily have to steal, they don't necessarily have to murder or become sodomites, etc, and so forth. however, no sinner has a right motive, no sinner has ever had a right motive, and this is what the Bible teaches jeremiah seventeen and nine The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked who can know it. Of course, this is speaking of an unregenerate heart or our heart apart from Jesus. Romans three, ten through twelve, as it is written, There is none righteous, no not one, there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no not one. Hence nothing sinners can do, and nothing a sinner would do, even some external conformity to the law is acceptable to God. And this goes for even a Christian that is seeking to do something in the strength or the power of the flesh, completely rejected by God. Amen? Proverbs 15 and 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Isaiah 64 and 6, but we are all as an unclean thing and all of our righteousness are as filthy rags and we do fade as a leaf And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Thus, no one apart from Christ can produce true holiness. What is true holiness? True holiness is the person of Jesus. It's not to mimic. Amen. It's not to manufacture. It's not to play act. Amen. It is literally the life of Christ. Amen. In and through us. That's the only acceptable holiness to God. Amen, as we've been reading about the cross. And we read in Galatians chapter 2 and 20 and 21, the life that I now live. I live in the flesh by the Son of God. Not I, but Christ. That's what he's talking about. That's what holiness is. Amen, Christ is God's standard and no one can manifest the Lord Jesus Christ apart from Christ. Now, we talk about Romans 7 and we know that Romans 7 is is a... Uh, Often mis- you know, misrepresented as a Christian experience, and it's you know frequently used by the antinomians and the sin lovers to justify their sin. So we know that's a misapplication of Romans chapter seven. But Romans seven is in the Bible for a reason. Romans seven exalts the law of God. Romans seven uh, reveals the law or uh, affirms the law as a schoolmaster. That brings a man to Christ. Amen. We we always say Romans seven is a legal experience. How do we know that? Because Romans six gives us the commentary. Amen. The sure commentary for Romans seven. Amen. And the, and the Bible says in Romans six that sin, if you're a Christian, sin shall not have dominion over you because you're under grace and not law. But if sin does have dominion over you, that means you're under the law and not grace. And if Romans 7 is not an example, amen, of uh, you know, the law having dominion over someone, I don't know what it is. So the Bible defines it, amen, as a legal experience. And we read there in verses 14 through 19 of Romans 7, and this really speaks to ability because you have people in moral government, a lot of moral government, theology, they will say that man... This is something that's referred to as semi-Pelagius or Pelagian, and uh, that 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 man could obey all. The, in fact, I had a brother one time that I say a brother, uh, a street preacher, and he, of course, he just had a, a child. I think he his wife was pregnant with the second, and his first child was, you know, maybe a year old. He said, i all my children are going to obey the law. They're never going to break the law their whole life." I said, "Okay." See how that works. Amen. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do, or that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent under the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, that's not the Christian experience, but that is the sinner's experience as soon as he tries to do good, which reveals to me, amen, that he has no ability. What else could that mean, amen? No no greater proof text in the Bible, Amen, for inability than Romans chapter 7, inability of sinners. I mean, I can do all things. If we're born again under grace, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? But if I don't have grace, then I'm going to sin, and I'm going to sin a lot. That doesn't mean I have to be a drunkard, but there's no way that I'm going to escape all sin. And it certainly go- uh, uh, doesn't mean I'm going to have a right motive. Hence, everyone needs to be born again. Hallelujah. Men are ultimately responsible for their sins because God has provided the means for utter deliverance, namely Jesus Christ and his gospel. So how does that work? If a sinner doesn't have the ability to truly produce holiness in and of himself, how can he be responsible? Well, you don't have the ability to fly. if I told Brother Brian, uh, you know, I'm going to command you if he was somehow obligated to obey I uh, mean, I said, I'm gonna command you, Brother Brown, to be in Los Angeles uh tomorrow morning at five o'clock AM. I mean he can't he has no ability to supernaturally be there. But if I paid for his plane ticket, then he would have a way, a means to get there. And so in and of ourselves we cannot obey God, but we have Jesus, the gospel, provided for us where we could obey God. That makes us culpable, amen. So in regards to salvation, no man can come to repentance and be converted to Christianity apart from what we call prevenient grace, and that just simply means before, amen, before, grace before. We have grace through being regenerated, amen, or the drawing of God's spirit via the conviction of sin, and that's, of course, expressed in John 6 and 44, No man can come to me except the Father, which has sent me, draw him. So Jesus said, when I be lifted up, I will what? Draw all men. So this drawing is to all men. Amen. When he was crucified, he was lifted up from the earth. Amen. All that drawing of the Spirit of God is drawing all of mankind. Then, of course, through the preaching of the gospel, there's even a higher degree of grace. Amen. But no man can come to the Lord Jesus Christ apart from the conviction of the Spirit of God. The Bible says when he comes, he will reprove. The Spirit of God will reprove the world unbelievers of sin, righteousness, and judgment. First Corinthians 12 and 3, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Amen. So no one gets right with God in and of themselves. No one just simply chooses to get right with God. We have a choice, but we're going to talk about that as we move here, move ahead. Therefore, the definition of the free will of man is not that man has the volitional power to actually fully obey God or to be reconciled to God apart from God, but rather that God graciously grants him freedom to choose to either reject or submit to his merciful influence and grace. This view of human freedom is commonly referred to as the power of the contrary. In philosophy, this is known as non-compatibilist freedom or libertarian freedom, amen? And see, non-compatibilist, unlike the Calvinists that have a compatibilist view of free will, meaning it is compatible with determinism, Or predestination. So, since the fall, man's volitional freedom is somewhat limited. He is culpable for his actions because, number one, sin was introduced into humanity through the fall, but personal bondage to sin is acquired directly through individual sin. Neither is he by necessity externally forced to specifically violate God's law. Though outside of conversion, God's law, he will certainly violate. And lastly, God has provided a way, namely Jesus Christ and him crucified as an escape from the cycle of sinful bondage. Finally, sinners cannot be converted apart from divine influence, but they do possess the volitional ability to resist and reject God and his drawing. And that basically summarizes our view of the free will of man and again this is you know very concise and uh, very simplistic but that's the basic view so we're going to stop right here because the next section is uh, pretty lengthy here we probably cannot get it uh, accomplished today and we're going to pick up uh, on Wednesday evening praise the Lord let's stand